Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to episode 11 of This Is Our Epping Podcast, a Red Sox show with your co hosts, Sean McAdam and Steve Lyons. We have reached the all-star break of the 2021 season. And on today's episode, we'll be taking a look back a little bit at the first half and the end of the first half of the season and how the Red Sox wrapped up um, some developments over the last few days. And then we'll look ahead to an important stretch for the team coming out of the break where they play, I think, 18 or 19 days in a row without a day off and all of those games against teams from the AL East, teams they are jockeying with uh, in the American League East division and for a playoff spot. So uh, a busy time. Steve, welcome, and how are you? Well, I'm doing great. Actually uh, spending a little time in the city of Boston here for a little while, enjoying the rain, and either either rain or 100 degrees, one or the other, so it's great. Yep, nothing in between. Pick your poison. Nope. Um, all right. Let's look back a little, uh, Steve, at the uh, close of the first half of the season, which was, uh, which did not end in great fashion for the Red Sox. Their last two series came against teams right at the 500 level, the Los Angeles Angels on the road, and then back home, the Philadelphia Phillies. And the Red Sox lost both those series and, in fact, lost four of the last five games of the first half. And Kind of sloppy uh, at times a little bit, both defensively, uh, some poor pitching performances here and there. Um, hard to criticize a team that uh, many thought was about a 500 team and has uh, ended up finishing the first half in first place in the AL East, tied for the best record in the American League. We, we recognize that it was a much better first half of the season than many expected, but um sort of feels like they took their foot off the gas here in the final week. Yeah, I mean, that might be a good way to explain it because this team's kind of been a little bit of an enigma because of the things that you just mentioned. But then it's, you know, you're scratching your head because it's really hard to criticize what they've done. Games, the teams that you thought they'd just wipe away and yet they, they play pretty well against teams that have decent records, and they've done that most of the season, that which, which I think, you know, that has to be a good sign. You have to be able to play well against teams that are at least as good as you are. Um, and, you know, I think you and I have both been kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop as far as the pitching staff is concerned. And, you know, I guess maybe it's a Boston mentality that we're always waiting for the other shoe to drop because they've been really, really good. The starters have been really, really good. They've gotten deep into games. They've saved the bullpen arms for the most part. And yet over the last week or so, you started to see some cracks and, you know, you, you kind of expect to see more of that in the second half, not less. Yeah. You wonder if um, we have spoken about how unusual it is have five starters make literally every start you, you, you know technically we could go back and say that Eduardo Rodriguez missed his first turn of the year but he ended up pitching the seventh game of the season so it wasn't like he was out for any extended period we remember he had the dead arm over the final two weeks of spring training 
And as a precaution, they held them out of that uh, first series homestand start. But they literally have had, you know, 89 out of 91 games started by five pitchers, which is completely unheard of in this day and age of baseball. But you do wonder whether that might take its toll or whether we're already seeing it start to take its toll. These guys have all made 17 and 18 starts so far. And I know that they are crafting the start of the second half rotation with an eye toward giving them a little bit of time off. There's some talk about maybe inserting Tanner Houck into the rotation sometime next week to provide even an extra day of rest in addition to the three that they'll get from the all-star break. But the, the workload for the rotation is something that's got to be monitored going forward. Yeah. And it's really a double-edged sword too, because once you see your starters falter, if in fact that happens, then you overuse the bullpen to counteract that. And then they don't throw the ball as well because then they start to get gassed as well. So there's no easy solution there. Uh, you have to monitor the innings of, of the guys. And, you know, you and I have talked about this in past episodes where are they, are they stronger or are they not as strong because they had most of last season off? You know, I kind of feel like that would make your arm a little bit more refreshed coming into this year, but there certainly is a legitimate theory saying that they didn't work enough last year. So they're going to be more tired this year. Uh, you know, that makes sense as well. It's like, you know, I'm not sure what side of the coin you fall on. You really have to, I think it take it individually between each pitcher and the way they feel. But if the, if the starters start to falter a much greater workload on the, on uh, the relief staff. And I think that's spells disaster as the season wears on. And uh, you know, but if there's a guy waiting in the wings to take the ball, what's wrong with Tanner Houck? That's a guy that you want to have the ball in his hands sooner or later. Yeah, and, you know, there's even been the suggestion that they might take Hauk, uh in time, perhaps Connor Siebold, who is coming back from uh, some elbow inflammation and just started a rehab assignment uh, down in Fort Myers with the Gulf Complex League affiliate. There's been the suggestion that maybe if you plug in Whitlock, Hauk, and Seabold um, as multi-inning relievers, and that shortens up the stress load for the starters and um, and gives the bullpen, the high leverage guys, a little time off. So if you just get maybe four innings out of your starters, dial them back a little bit, and then bring in any one of those guys to go two or three innings to get you to Ottavino and Barnes at the end, then everybody kind of benefits from that where you're not asking your starters to go deep and you're not into your bullpen in the sixth inning with your high leverage guys every other night. Yeah, it's a good philosophy if it works. And I've always been under the impression in baseball that anytime you make a pitching change, it could be a potential disaster, especially if you're trying to limit the innings of one of your starters and he just threw four strong innings and you're saying, now nah, let's get him out of there and bring Whitlock in for two or three. Well, if Whitlock shows up without his best stuff, now all of a sudden you took a, a, a an outstanding performance from a starter, a potential win, if he's pitching well enough to get that win and your offense is producing, and you bring someone in who may not have his good stuff that day, and next thing you know, three innings later, you're getting beat by two runs. Now you're not using the rest of the rotation the way you would if you were winning. And it, it, I think it can certainly blow up in your face because 
you know, the manager is going to try to put guys into position to where they can best succeed. But we all know that doesn't always happen. And any time you make a pitching change, it can blow up in your face. Yeah, it, it is one of those things that is probably easier said than done. It might look good on paper, but in actual application, there are some hurdles that you have to overcome. And you mentioned one of them. Uh, on the subject of the bullpen, uh, the Red Sox made a little news on the final day of the first half by announcing a contract extension for closer Matt Barnes. Uh, he gets signed to a two-year, $18.75 million deal that goes through 2023 with a team option for 2024. Um, he is one of the potential or was one of the potential free agents to be that the Red Sox crossed off the list. Eduardo Rodriguez and a couple of others still remain. But I thought this was a, a, a good team-friendly deal that got signed. Not that I'm rooting for the Red Sox to save money. But for, um, you know, when you step back and look at it objectively, uh, maybe Barnes hasn't arrived in that elite closers role yet. He's only been doing the job periodically for the last season and a half. But uh, when, when you see some of the top um, late inning relievers like Liam Hendricks getting, you know, three years and 50 million something dollars last year from White Sox, uh, seven million and change to lock up Matt Barnes for the next two years certainly seems like a prudent decision on the part of the Sox. Yeah, I think it's a great deal. I, I really do. Uh, you know, I, I like Matt Barnes. I, I watched him struggle a little bit, even in a, in a setup role and certainly in a closers role before he really learned how to throw strikes consistently. You know, we watched him go through a period where his curveball was unhittable, but he never threw it for a strike. So if the hitters actually, you know, smartened up and laid off of it, he always spiked it in the dirt. Um, and when they did lay off, he had trouble with walks and it was you know, a potential problem for him. I've watched him mature from that. I think he still can have some of those same problems, but let's face it, baseball ain't easy. You're not going to go out there and just, you know, be elite every time. So I think you're right. I think he's edging ever closer to the elite status as one of the better closers in the game, because when he is on, there's no question he's dominant. He can walk in and strike out three guys. Everyone sits down we go home. Uh, and for, you know, what, less than 10 million a year. Are you kidding me? That's, that's a drop in the bucket. It's a great deal for the Red Sox. I'm happy for Matt that, you know, he's certainly secure for the rest of his life and he'll, he'll go on from there and even make more money. And I love the option year because I mean, you're still talking about one more year after that where the Red Sox can make the determination. Is he still an elite pitcher and we can hang on to him for short money? Or if we make the decision where we don't want to do it, because I'm assuming it is a club option you let yes. the guy go if he's not doing the job. Right. And and that's kind of been a hallmark of any deal that Heim Bloom has made since coming aboard and uh, becoming chief baseball officer for the Red Sox. If you look at the deals they did in the offseason to sign free agents, they did give Kike Hernandez a two-year guaranteed deal. But every other contract they signed over the winter was a year with an option on the part of the team. Uh, which is a smart way of doing business, and it takes advantage of a uh, kind of pulled-off free agent market where players might ordinarily want to get that second year guaranteed or two years in an option rather than one plus one. But they took advantage of uh, the way the market 
went and and put themselves in a no-risk spot so that if the player performs in his first year, they can bring him back at, uh, at essentially the same money for a second year. And if he struggles, uh, they can cut loose and either walk away entirely or renegotiate something down from the previous uh, salary that was given. So it really is a no-lose situation on the part of the club. Yeah, that, and that's the way it was described to me as coming from the player's perspective basically i didn't mind having an option because let's face it i wasn't a great player i kind of wanted to be under team control free agency never worked well for me because i wasn't in that great a demand you know i had to kind of scuffle around and see who was i would rather have been under control by a team but basically you look at the player and you say it's a bad deal for the player because if they pick up the option it means you're you're worth more than what they have to pay you. Right. And if they don't pick it up, it's because you didn't play very well and you're going to be out there on your own anyway. Yeah, I, I mean, that there's really very little exposure for the team in this, as you correctly pointed out. Uh, if they guessed right and signed the right guy and he performed, they get to bring him back at essentially the same money. And if he disappoints or underachieves, then you walk away and you have no further obligation there. Uh, so there's really no risk in either scenario for the Red Sox. Um, the Red Sox uh, also in the news over the weekend, Steve, with the amateur draft and the highest selection the Red Sox have had in the amateur draft going all the way back to 1966. That was the second year the draft was in place. Draft got introduced in 1965 to go back to the last time the Red Sox had a pick as high as number four, you have to go back to 1966. Um, somewhat to their surprise, they were able to select Marcelo Meyer, a, a terrific shortstop prospect from San Diego area who had been on a lot of draft boards going either one or two, looked upon as one of the first or second most talented players in the draft. Obviously, an 18-year-old, a lot of things can happen. Um, you know, th this kid, as good as he is, has only played at the high school level, and baseball history is littered with bonus babies and high draft picks out of high school, and some even out of college. You never uh, make good on that potential, but from uh, every scouting report and everyone you talk to, the Red Sox got a, a – a potentially foundational player at a time when they're in first place. I mean, you know, uh, it's kind of the best of both worlds. They had a lousy season last year. They have bounced back very quickly in 2021. And on top of that, they get arguably the most talented amateur player in the country. Yeah, it was surprising to me because, you know, you, you and I had talked about it and all the reports that I read, you know, kind of, it seemed like uh, Jack Leiter might fall to that spot. He got picked earlier, and then all of a sudden, you're talking about one of the top guys in the draft. And obviously, we're talking about guys, you know, the top five players are pretty outstanding. And, um, you know, we know that scouting is not an exact science, but it's way better now, especially for the teams that still believe in it. And the Red Sox are one of those teams. There, there are a ton of teams out there that have cut way back on their scouting uh, and basically gone with analytics and, and, and Bureau scouts and information from other people. You know, I think the Red Sox still actually believe in going out and scouting these players, 
you know, trying to figure out who they are personally off the field. So yeah, it's a bigger risk when you're talking about a kid that's 18 years old, but I also think you're talking about a kid that's very, very dedicated to the game, wants to play, uh, will uh, continue to move along talent wise. And on top of which the organization, when you're going to spend that much money on a guy and you're going to draft him in the first round, they are going to help him and give him every opportunity to succeed as well. So I think it's a great match. We talked about that. Do they take uh, a, a need that they have, or did they take the best athlete at the time? And, you know, I thought it was a very classy move that Xander Bargarts went over at the all-star game during the uh, home run hitting contest yesterday and gave him a big hug, even though, you know, some people would say, Hey, wait a minute, bogey, that's your heir apparent. I got news for you. Bogey will be playing shortstop for this Red Sox team as long as he wants to. And uh, you know, no matter how good that kid is, they'll find a spot for him. Uh, but, you know, I, I think it's uh, it, was, it was an excellent draft by them, and they they got a great athlete who could have been the number one pick. Yeah, and he seems like a you know a pretty mature kid um, who uh, you know has been under the spotlight to the degree that any high school baseball player is under the spotlight. I don't think the attention a high school player in baseball gets is commensurate with somebody in football or, or basketball, you don't have the AAU factor, you don't have the college uh, recruiting that is as uh, intense and gets the sort of media attention it does in those other two sports. But you know, when you're playing baseball in Southern California and people are label labeling you as the best high school player in the country, there's some attention and spotlight that comes with that. And he seems to have handled it very well. Um, he, he has said that he is, uh, although he has a, uh, commitment to USC. If he wants to go the college route, he left little doubt in speaking to reporters the last couple of days that he intends to uh, sign with the Red Sox. Um, the slot value in there is somewhere around the $6.6 million range. Uh, Steve, you were a shortstop taken in the first round by the Red Sox. Was that right about the bonus that you got from them in 1981? I, you know, I was so big time. They gave me more than that. That's that's what happened. <laughs> I, Sean, I, I had to fight. Well, let's put it this way. Um, I played for 13 years, you know, both major leagues and minor leagues. I made a little over $2.2 million in my entire career. This guy will get three times more than I made in my entire career to put his name on a piece of paper. Yeah, before he puts the uniform on. Yeah, I signed for $55,000. Um I was in, the, and there's some correlation there. I was the first round pick in 1981. Uh, I was the 19th player chosen. And then the Red Sox did the exact same thing with Ellsbury. I don't want to put you on a spot because I don't remember either, but the Ellsbury draft, I can't remember exactly when that was, but mine was 81. His was probably what, late 90s, early 2000s. No, no, no. He would, um, let's see, his rookie year was 2007. So, he yeah. would have probably or, been signed around 2004 or so. I'm thinking. He got he got 1.9 million. I got fifty five thousand dollars. <laughs> and now this kid's gonna get two guys from two guys from Oregon and and uh, and vastly different results. <laughs> Indeed. Um, you know what, Sean? You're gonna have to you're gonna have to bring this kid out of his shell though because he was very short and concise with his answers, you know, professional, as you mentioned, um, measured, uh, very uh, close to the vest. So I think you're going to have to bring his personality out when he gets here.
Yeah, he clearly has been coached, Steve, to you know not say anything uh, inflammatory or controversial. And look, um, few of us are, are on that stage at 18 years old, uh, about to become a multimillionaire several times over with uh, with reporters from all over the country. When he was in Denver talking to him, uh, national television. Uh, the, the whole bit, I, I'm sure he feels a little bit overwhelmed. Uh, he's represented by John Boggs, who is, of course, a well-known player agent in the San Diego area, who also, as a matter of fact, represented Adrian Gonzalez, who went to the same high school that Marcelo Meyer went. That's East Lake High in Chula Vista, California. Um, so, you know, John Boggs had... had uh, had Tony Gwynn, he had Adrian Gonzalez, he's had a number of name players so I'm, I'm sure he is given the proper guidance to Marcelo at this point but um, we'll, we'll do our best to uh, see if we can crack through that wall a little bit in the ensuing months and years ahead. Um, meanwhile the Red Sox are going to open the second half of the season with a pretty big series in Yankee Stadium uh, to be followed by a uh, quick trip to Buffalo for three games with the Blue Jays. But let's focus on the Yankees here. Uh, they played a little bit better down the stretch, Steve, coming up to the break. They took two out of three from Houston before losing in an incredible way on Sunday, the final day of the first half, with a six-run ninth inning against them by the Astros, including an Altuve walk-off of all people. Um, the, this would seem to be... Uh, you know, it's not like the, the Red Sox lead is so formidable that they don't have to worry about the Yankees or anybody else. But it uh, seems to me that this series probably means more to the Yankees than it does the Red Sox. The, the Yankees have to start coming into that lead pretty soon. Yeah, considering they haven't played well against the Red Sox all season up to this oh and, point. Oh, and six so far. Yeah, uh, we've seen that reversed uh, in, in recent seasons, too, against the Yankees. So it's good for them to get out to a nice uh, early lead in this in the season series. Uh, you know, I think it's really important. And, uh, you know, it is time to start looking at the standings. And ever since I got into the media, I always was like, it was so weird. It was like, and we're looking at the wild card. And, you know, they played 80 games. I'm like, who cares? It's, it's not, it's way too early to be looking. But I think this season is a little bit different because, We've talked about how evenly matched some of these teams are. The Red Sox were able to get a little bit of that lead there uh, that can give them a cushion. But we talked about a 17-game stretch earlier in the season where they had no days off playing against some decent teams and how that would, you know, kind of shape the season for them. They came out of that with glowing reports, and now they're going to do it again, this time 18 straight games, no days off, mostly divisional play. Uh, it's, I'm not one of those guys that says, Oh my God, it's a must win series. There's a the situation you have to win because, you know, you could play poorly for the next 18 games and then turn around and win seven games in a row. And you're kind of right back where you should been. So, but I, but I do think it's important. It, it's big games against divisional foes. And, and I, I think it definitely means something as far as the way this season shapes out. Yeah, it should be fun. And, and, you know, obviously Red Sox Yankees gets everybody's attention and, uh, that Thursday game, the first game back, will be the only game in Major League Baseball on Thursday night. Uh, ESPN, ESPN has uh, exclusive access to that to kind of kick off the second half. And you know that the TV networks, both ESPN and Fox, can't get enough Red Sox-Yankees. 
Uh, so three of those four games were going to be nationally televised Thursday and Sunday night on ESPN, Saturday on Fox. Everybody kind of hypes the rivalry, but uh, should be a should be an interesting way to kick off the second half for both teams. Um, we so that are, means guys like uh, Tom Karen on Nesson's got even more time off then. That's right. He'll, he'll be up at the lake somewhere and and extending his All Star break. Um, we also want to talk a little Guaranteed. bit. <laughs> we also want to talk a little bit about um, the home run derby, which took place on Monday night at Coors Field as part of the annual All Star Game festivities. And I can't remember a home run derby that had the amount of interest and anticipation this one did, principally because of the participation of Shohei Otani. Uh, and then in kind of an upset, he got knocked off in the first round and didn't last very long. Um, maybe he was just new to the process. You hear guys talking about how to pace yourself and that you have to go through it once before to really know how to approach it. Um, maybe he'll be better in future years. But just the star quality of Otani brought a lot to the night. And then Pete Alonso of the Mets ends up winning it for the second time in three years. Of course, there was no Derby or All-Star game last year. So he essentially is now a back-to-back champ. I know fans uh, really get into it. It's, it's, a, it's a fun night, particularly if you're at the ballpark and the atmosphere, and it's become a big TV event for ESPN. Um, but uh, forgive me if I'm sometimes a little bit bored with watching guys take batting practice for two and a half hours. I uh, couldn't agree with you more. I mean, if, if I if I didn't know that we were that we had to talk about it uh, on this podcast, I probably would have skipped it. Uh, I've skipped it many times in past seasons and checked into the highlights and got as much as I information as I needed to know. But it was it was the it was the Showtime Otani show, and that's why so many people checked in. Now, what I noticed as far as the way he approached it, and he has been in these before, uh, you know, in his own country, he's won them before. Um, but he looked over anxious, and and you know who could blame him? And he also, I believe, had a batting practice pitcher that was thrown to him that he hadn't seen since like spring training. So I was surprised at who he picked to throw to him, and. And I was surprised to see how over anxious he was. He was out in front, pulling everything down the line, kind of coming over the top of everything, hitting a lot of uh, top spin line drives to the right side. When he has massive power to right center and left center, I was surprised that he was unable to kind of wait on the ball and kind of use his power to the middle of the field, where especially at Coors Field, that place can't hold him at all. But it was, it was still kind of cool to see because they tied twice <laughs> and he, he had a chance and you could see how tired he was. He was yeah. gassed at the end of that thing. So I hope that doesn't affect him for the rest of the season. Like a lot of people have said that it can. Yeah. We've seen a, a number of guys um, struggle. I, you know, I, I think of Bobby Abreu is one of the more obvious examples uh, when he was with the Phillies, uh, got into the all-star home run derby uh, had a lot of fun and then tanked in the second half. And you have guys say, oh, I changed my swing. Uh, you know, I, I, I developed a hitch in my swing. My swing mechanics were off. I got tired. I mean, I think some of that is maybe a little overdone. But uh, the fact is that, you know, the record shows that some guys um, don't come out of that well and, and pay for it with their performance 
uh, as the season gets back underway. And, you know, and he has to jump right back into it today as the leadoff hitter and the starting pitcher. Amazing for baseball, a, a tremendous talent, uh, you know, hands-on MVP right now. Uh, if the season was over right now is, is for my money. We'll see what happens through the rest of the season. But just uh, an, an outstanding two-way talent that people want to see. And uh, it seems like a great kid. And, but, man, was he tired at the end of that. I hope that doesn't affect today and, and further on. Yeah, and, and credit to Otani for embracing this whole uh, all-star event. You know, the, uh, you, you've got more established guys. Even a guy like Vladimir Guerrero, who's, what, 23 years old, and he's saying, no, nah, I, I did the uh, derby last time. I'm sitting it out. Uh, I, I think Otani understands his uh, responsibility, if you will, uh, that, 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 that he is uh, quickly becoming the face of the sport and, uh, and knows that, there, you know, that, that something is expected of him that, uh, and, and that he embraces it. You know, he doesn't run away from uh, the spotlight. He knows that people want to see him. And, you know, he seems happy to give the people what they want. It'll be an interesting all-star game this evening from Coors Field. It'll be an interesting start to the second half for the Red Sox with four in Yankee Stadium. And Steve, we'll be back early next week to uh, talk about it. Enjoy the break. We'll break it all down again. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.